When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where I try to take the questions of the day and do my best to answer them. Today is the second Sunday of Advent, which is a time to focus on a character named John. John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. So here we go. The Gospel of Luke starts out its narrative of John the Baptist. This is after Jesus is born, after John the Baptist is born, both of who have miraculous births. It's almost as if God is telling people that the natural processes and laws and strictures and structures of this world are passing away. But even things like old age for John the Baptist's parents doesn't matter, or Mary's virginity doesn't matter. God's going to do what God will do in the world in spite of the limitations that all of us have. And here we meet Emperor Tiberius, He's the emperor. And then Pontius Pilate is the governor of Judea. And Herod is ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip are ruling these other places, Iturea and Trachonitis. And Lysanias is ruler of Abilene, not Abilene, Texas. And the priests are Annas and Caiaphas. And is at this moment, with like the worst people ever in charge. I mean, the worst. Emperor Tiberius. I mean, what else are we going to say about him? Tiberius is the Roman general that, or emperor, imperator, the conqueror, who is known for his administrative genius and his reluctance to lead. He promotes the cult of Emperor Augustus, his predecessor, and the worship of that emperor, and just a little bit of worship for himself in one temple, but mainly emphasized the worship of Caesar Augustus, who is the emperor when Jesus is born, who all the world goes to be registered under his reign. And so Tiberius is boring Pliny the Elder calls him the most gloomy of men, but he is far away in Rome. In fact, he's probably the most responsible party in this group mentioned. Pontius Pilate appointed to be governor of Judea. From the very beginning, Pilate enrages the Jewish authorities. He parades his Roman eagles into Jerusalem. He does a number of other things to blaspheme and denigrate the Jewish religion, all the while trying not to do such things. He is always trying to keep the peace and then doing really stupid things that further enrage the people in Jerusalem and surrounding area. And that's Pilate. We meet him at Jesus' trial. And then Herod. Herod is the son of Herod the Great, the despotic ruler who colored his hair in his latter years to look younger uh, a massive building project king of the Jews, Herod the Great. He was a dashing cavalry commander, a military leader who befriended Mark Antony, who saved Mark Antony 
in an ambush. And Mark Antony and Cleopatra loved this guy. They loved Herod the Great. And because of his connections to Mark Antony and lots of other folks in Rome, he became the king of the Jews. He married into the high priestly and kingly family of the time. And that was how he made his claim to the throne. His father had been a king of the area of Edom or Idumea, but his claim to the Jewish throne really technically comes through his wife. There's a joke in Greek about Herod the Great that is recorded by the Romans that allegedly the emperor, Caesar Augustus, said that it'd be better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. And the joke is funny in Greek because the word huios is, is similar to the word uios. Huios, the son, and uios, the pig. I think that's the right way around. Um, better to be Herod's uios than his huios. Um, because as an observant Jew, Herod would not eat pork, but Herod, as a despotic king, would kill his own son. And he does that. He murders his own son because he thinks he's plotting against him, as well as his wife, Mariamne, who is his claim to the Jewish throne. But then his sons, Herod Antipas and Herod Philip, and his brother Philip become the kings. They split the kingdom up and they each get a little chunk. Lysanias, much lesser known there in Abilene. And then these two priests, Annas and Caiaphas. Annas is the high priest that is before Caiaphas, but he's still exercising power and authority. And Caiaphas is the priest, high priest who is presiding at the trial of Jesus in the Sanhedrin. Annas and Caiaphas seem to be very sympathetic to the Sadducees' cause. They're notably friendly to the Sadducees and therefore very close with Rome. They were able to survive so long because they didn't do a lot to oppose the Roman occupation. But it was in this chaotic and really a betrayal of God's people uh, with these leaders, these leaders, look at them. I mean, just look at them. These are the leaders of God's people. And you can see that there's a vacuum of real leadership, a vacuum of people that actually care, a vacuum of people that have been there in the, the thick of it and know the hardship and suffering of human life. It, these are the most out-of-touch leaders you can possibly imagine. This is in the days before representative democracy, where people at least have the illusion that they are in control, that we have a vote, that we have a say. Uh, nobody has a say in any of this. All you can do is do your best to not piss any of these guys off, and you'll be okay, maybe. But it was in this chaotic and despotic and uncertain time, it says the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. When all these who are in positions of power are doing the same thing, each of them trying to preserve their legacy, trying to enlarge their empire, trying to expand their influence and wallet, while all these men are doing that, the word of God doesn't come to them. The word of God goes to the wilderness, to John, the son of Zechariah. God is always going to places that no one else wants to go to. God is always going and giving his word 
to people who we would not expect it to happen to. John the Baptist is such a one. He is in the wilderness, in the emptiness, in the void, in the in-between, places where you can't live, places where you can't, there's no water, there's no sustenance for life on a grand scale or a bigger scale. The wilderness is a place of hardship, of testing, of trial, of ambiguity. And that is the place the word of God comes to, in a place of great uncertainty. I know I've talked a little bit about my liver troubles here before, and just getting that news over the spring that my liver was near failure, that it was about to die. Um, I experienced what I've never really experienced before is, is the, the certainty of my own death, like really staring it in the face and looking at the curtain closing on what has been my life. Um, maybe needing a transplant, and that seemed that felt a lot like death to me, um, and maybe eking out another couple years, not well, that felt like death. I didn't know. My own grandfather made it a few more years than me from the same liver problem, so I felt that as very much a prophetic word for what was going to happen to me. And I have, had a lot of feelings about that. I was really sad about that. I felt like you know, I felt like I deserved a longer life for some reason. You know, these are the thoughts that go through my head, that went through my head when all this happened. And I had a couple impulses um, during that time. And I wondered, like, if I only have a few more years, what do I do with those few years? And I kind of decided that, you know, I'd, I'd quit my job and I would try to see my kids a lot. And I would that would be my focus. Um, and then um, when I went for one test late at night, I had to fast all day. So I was already having like a spiritual experience, not eating or drinking. When you do these liver elastiograms or fibro scans, you have to not drink any water or anything for like eight hours prior. And mine was at night, so I had stopped like eating and drinking somewhere in the midday. And it was summertime, so you're allowed to sip a tiny amount of water just to like get by. But I was pretty miserable when 10 p.m., 10.30 rolled around. I went to the diagnostic testing center, and it was really dark out, and it was hot out like it is in Texas in this big strip mall parking lot. And I went into the deserted testing place. There's a really high demand for liver tests right about now, I suppose. And so they had to squeeze me in late at night. And this place like runs 24-7, testing people. And I went in there and I was waiting and there's no one around, just maybe there's one person working the front desk, but they're not there. They're like coming and going in the back. So I'm just there in this big waiting room. And I pulled out my prayer book app and I opened it up to Compline because it was late. And um, as much as I like to think I'm self-disciplined, I have trouble praying Compline every day, every night. And that's the night office, the night prayers. And I remember praying them, and I was praying the Psalms, keep me, O Lord, as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shelter of your rock. And as I read those, I had a feeling 
and I had a feeling that God was talking to me. The word of God came to me. And it was this message that everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. And you've got to keep doing this stuff, no matter what. You've got to keep praying and leading others in prayer. And you've got to keep opening this prayer book to these Psalms with people in your church. And you're not going to quit. You're not going to stop. You're going to keep leading people in prayer. And you're going to keep doing this. And you're going to be all right. And I didn't know what that word of God meant. And I, when I, I realized that when I talk about spiritual experiences, I hope that you don't think that this is something you're supposed to have all the time <clears throat> or ever. I'm not sure... I think for a lot of people, God doesn't need to speak this way because you're probably better at listening than I am, but I'm not. And so I heard this word. That's all I know. And it told me that I was going to be okay and that I had to keep praying and leading this little church. And it was reassuring because I didn't know what that meant, if it meant I was going to get better or not get better. And I don't think the word of God ever tells us those things. It doesn't really tell us as much outcomes as directions, um, that this is the path you have to walk for right now. And there in the middle of the night, in the dark, I knew that was true. And I knew that I'd be okay, no matter what. Now, in the meantime, like the day after and the day after and getting worse news from doctors. And like, yeah, I didn't always feel that way. I didn't always feel like it was all going to get better. It was all going to be okay or that even I would be okay. But I hung on to that word like you do. You hang on to the word you have. And I hung on to that word all the way to Two weeks ago, Wednesday, when I got the word from the doctor that my liver was 100% healed, that it had gotten better. The stuff I had done to make my liver a little better had worked, and other factors that I don't fully understand, perhaps God's presence in my life, I don't know, had helped too. And I was really thankful about that. And I still remember that word. Because the word of God always comes to us in the middle of the night, in the dark, when it's hot out or when it's cold out, and when you feel like giving up and you feel like it's all over, that's when the word of God comes to you, comes to us. And that's when the word of God came to John in the wilderness, not in the city, not in the nice place, not where the good schools are. God, the word of God came to him in the wilderness. And he went all around proclaiming this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It seems sort of a no-brainer that a religion would do this, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, but that's not exactly true. Um, lots of religion isn't focused on repentance or forgiveness. But this religion, this faith movement, which was well in keeping with Judaism at the time. John the Baptist is a Jewish prophet 
quoting Isaiah all the time, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. He is calling people to this repentance so they can receive forgiveness for their sins. And this is the work of this movement, that there is repentance. There is a chance to turn around. There is forgiveness. There is a letting go of what we have done in Jesus Christ. And that is what he is preaching. He is preaching that it is possible for you to experience this. It is possible for you to repent and to be forgiven, no matter what you've done, no matter how you failed, no matter what things haven't worked out through your own fault or the fault of others, no matter what has happened, things you've done that you've reg- you regret, things that you wish had never happened to you, all of these things are to be given to God, washed away in the waters of baptism, and then washed away again in the renewal waters of baptism as we remember our baptisms, as we experience this forgiveness. The forgiveness of sins comes over time, as we slowly feel God's grace infused into us through the Eucharist and through the fellowship of God's people. It's not enough to just know that God forgives us, but the community of Christ embodies that forgiveness. We do that together. We declare to each other, your sins are forgiven every time we interact with each other. That is what an interaction with a Christian church member means. It means that your sins are forgiven. And you need that interaction. I need that interaction. I need to see visibly that I am accepted, that I am welcomed, that I am loved by a community because I don't always feel that way. I don't always feel that I am forgiven. Those are the moments where we are most vulnerable and we want to despair and give up. And that is when the word of the Lord comes to us. In those times, saying, you are loved, you are forgiven, you are accepted, you are enough. Amen. Merciful God, who sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for our salvation, give us grace to heed their warnings and forsake our sins that we may greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.